everything that's exciting about physics and chemistry inside homes is extra, extra exciting inside of tiny spaces um, because it's just a much more, uh, everything is faster, everything is much more dangerous. So we're kind of living on the edge. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 50, my conversation with Corbett Lunsford. I'm really excited about this episode. If you care about air quality, about toxic materials potentially um, interacting with you and your tiny house in a bad way, then you're definitely going to want to catch this episode. And this is really cool because it's useful whether you are designing your tiny house right now, whether you're already building your tiny house, or even if you're already living in a tiny house or really any home, there is really great info that Corbett shares on how to look for and mitigate air quality and energy efficiency issues in your home. Before we get to that, I want to tell you a bit more about our sponsor this week, which is the Tiny House Design Build Certificate from the Yestermorrow School in Waitsfield, Vermont. My friend Chrissy took a course at Yestermorrow, which helped inspire her to actually take the leap and build her tiny house. And now she works for Yestermorrow as the student services manager. I got her on the phone and asked her to tell me about what is so special about the Tiny House Design Build Certificate. We're really excited to have the Tiny House Certificate here because it's uh, a really comprehensive program that brings together a lot of uh, courses that we've had in these short form um, kind of fits and spurts. And like now somebody can come here, be here for four weeks of focused hands-on education and really build something. Uh, In our shorter classes, you don't really have the opportunity to bring a project to close to completion. And in this one you do, so you frame it, you insulate it, you install the windows. Uh, and that's a really great opportunity to kind of look at it from a holistic approach. So students really get to go through the whole process from designing to building a tiny house. They really get the full experience. Yeah, when they arrive here, um, we have a trailer prepped for them ready to build on and they do the framing and and start getting their hands dirty like right away. Um, And all throughout that, they're also working on designs for their own dream tiny home. And so they get to be outside during the day, working on the job site, actually, you know, hammers in their hands, truly building something and then get to bring those lessons that they learn on the job site back in the, to the design studio to inform uh, the designs for their future home. To learn more, visit yestermorrow.org slash tiny and use the coupon code podcast to waive the $25 application fee. Again, that's yestermorrow, Y-E-S-T-E-R-M-O-R-R-O-W dot org slash tiny and use the coupon code podcast to save $25. All right, I am here with Corbett Lunsford. Corbett and his wife, Grace, created and co-host the first TV series about home performance called Home Diagnosis, which airs on PBS stations nationwide. It features their tiny lab, which they designed and built and still live in three years later, to teach homeowners about the invisible dynamics of physics and chemistry in homes of all sizes. Corbett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ethan. And that, that was a banging up job of an intro. I love that you uh, you hit on everything. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad that I hit all those points and I'm excited to talk 
physics and chemistry and high performance buildings. Awesome. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know how many people who are listening are actually listening in tiny houses. Uh, I'm talking from our tiny house, but it's um, everything that's exciting about physics and chemistry inside homes is extra, extra exciting inside of tiny spaces um, because it's just a much more, uh, everything is faster. Everything is much more dangerous. So we're kind of living on the edge. It's fun. So you probably my understanding of what you're saying is that because the house is small, you get that feedback a lot faster. Like, you know, when you're, well, you know, when your heat works really well and isn't escaping because it's so small. Exactly. And especially, I mean, you know, you can accidentally build something that's really dangerous too. You don't have to go out of your way to do it. People are, you know, a lot of people who build tiny houses believe or have been led to believe rather that spray foam is the best thing that there is. And my house has no spray foam in it anywhere. Um, not just for chemical reasons, but also because it's meant to flex and go on the road and go through an earthquake and hurricane at the same time. So anyway, all that stuff to say, people are building accidentally airtight. They're building with a lot more plastic, whether or not they realize that something that's in like a soy-based foam is actually plastic. But there's all the building components, materials, systems that we're putting into homes nowadays are nothing like our grandparents used to have. So thinking that you can live in a house the same way that your grandparents did is kind of a fallacy. And that's one of the things that tiny houses are especially um, sensitive to. And yeah, feedback, <laughs> instant feedback is definitely what I would, you know, put it a little bit more excitingly in that you can, um, you know, you could poison your family pretty quickly or make them all sick if you didn't really pay attention to stuff. So um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, the air quality thing I think is mostly what we focus on health, uh, especially kids. We have a, our baby was six weeks old when we hit the road in this thing and started living in it 24 hours a day. And, um, of course we had tours five days a week from five to 6 PM <clears throat> when we were in, uh, 20 cities across the country. And we would make sure that it didn't smell like a dirty sock when we let people in, cause we had, you know, a line of people who were wanting to come in and our whole pitch was, this is the best performing home that you've ever been in of any size. And so we made sure that when they came in they saw our two cats after a few minutes, they would say, Oh my gosh, I'm allergic to cats. Why am I not having a reaction? Or wait a minute, there's two cats in here. That means there must be a litter box. How come I can't smell it? This is 200 square feet. Or you have a baby, you have a bunch of poopy diapers clearly in here somewhere. Where are they? Or, you know, the composting toilet, has poop in it. Like, you know, most people <laughs> go into a tiny house that they see at a show. No one lives there. It's fresh. Like it's never been used or no one less, you know, slept in it last night for release. Um, and so that adventure of like really having something, trying to show proof of concept that you could have a house that's lived in every night with, you know, four human beings and two cats and it still smells awesome. Um, you know, and isn't making anybody ill is, is, uh, totally doable if you just follow the right, you know, prescription of trying to control the physics and chemistry. Yeah. So yikes, uh, making people sick, but I was hoping first to just back up and, and maybe cover some, some definitions and just have you explain, you know, in plain English, you know, what is a high performance building? Sure. So I'll take you through my, the way I think about performance is the four, three, two, one system. So basically there's four elements to home performance, uh, that which are basically the only things that we need to think about. 
the three recommendations that we'd make on any home. And let's talk, you know, since we're on a tiny life podcast, we'll talk about tiny homes, um, new and old. There are three recommendations we make. There are two systems at work inside of a tiny space that are affecting the performance successes and the performance failures that are, you know, have already been dramatically mentioned. And there's one goal for doing all this. So the four elements are heat flow, airflow and pressure, moisture and air quality. I have a much longer version of this that you can see on our YouTube channel. But basically, if you think about those four elements, those are basically all of the things that are interacting on the physical and chemical side to impact uh, what that we then get to with the three recommendations, which are first air sealing. Air sealing does a lot for you. I'm actually parked right now next to the busiest airport in the world. I'm five minutes away from the Atlanta airport. And um, you won't hear if any of your listeners do hear airplanes, then that means that I didn't do my job well because this place is super airtight, um, which is for comfort control, for health control, and also for noise control. Second thing that you want to do after air sealing is insulate. And then the third thing always is add engines that are going to move heat or air around. Um, so those machines are not going to work very well if the air sealing and insulation don't work first. Then the two systems that we're looking at here are the skin and the circulatory system of any space. So that would mean like the air sealing insulation layer and then the air conditioner, heater, water heating system, blah, blah, blah. All those engines that we just mentioned. And the one goal of doing, of analyzing a home based on the four elements, making those three recommendations on those two systems is not energy efficiency. My tiny lab can be plugged. It's, it runs on uh, 15 amps, uh, 120 volt. So I can plug my entire house into one outlet in any house in the country and run the entire thing. So yeah, I get energy efficiency, but that's not the goal. The goal really is control. So if you control heat flow, airflow and pressure, moisture and air quality, that is a high performance home. And that's basically the end of the line. You don't have to get it certified. You don't have to have solar panels, anything like that. You can do that stuff. That's great. But as far as just controlling the physics and chemistry, if you control those four elements, then, then you win. Wow. So in a tiny house, what are the material? What are those four elements for your house for the tiny lab? Aha. Okay. So the as when you think about the four elements, like really what it becomes is um, it's like a dance. It's very beautiful to really become aware of all of the different things. For, for anybody who plays music, for example, in music, and I used to be a musician, so I generally think in terms of music. There's harmony, which is relationships of things outside of time right? You have this note, that note, and, and the third note, and you add them all together, and it makes this really interesting relationship. That's harmony. And then you've got this consequence, which is melody, which is I move air from here, I blow it out there, air then comes in to replace it, and we've got sequence and consequence, which is the second element. So it's basically the same as harmony and melody. It's just uh, in our house, like for example, thermodynamics, as far as the heat flow, the first element that I mentioned goes, a lot of people in tiny spaces, first of all, every surface is closer to your face than in a normal house. So you have to have the, the comfort controls much better. I have noticed, for example, and I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, that a lot of people think that a, a setback thermostat, like setting the heat level to, and, and a lot of people in tiny houses, I know for a fact, don't have this ability at all because we're using things like gas stoves and you know things that are totally manual. But if you set back in a normal house, your thermostat from um, you know 70 in the daytime to 66 at night, so it's constantly ramping back those four degrees, and then in the morning it'll heat back up at five or six o'clock in the morning. 
energy efficiency wise, that's great because air is really cheap to heat up again. If you let the air cool down, that's one thing. But in a tiny space, you'll notice that since all of the materials, which is the second thing that you're heating and cooling, you're, you're not just heating and cooling the air, of course, you're heating and cooling all the solid stuff that's in the house. If you let those materials slip down a couple of degrees, you will feel it a lot more than in a big house because you're surrounded, you're really close to it. So that radiant heat flow that comes uh, from everything and goes to everything is a lot more obvious. I never use, I never set my thermostat at two different levels. I just set it at one level and then I just let it run for the entire winter or the entire summer because of that, that thing. Also, you'll have something like, for example, built in, um, closet space, built in, uh, shelves and stuff, all that stuff that we're crazy about in tiny spaces. Um, that all is also insulation, like a, a stack of clothes is technically going to be doing the same job as a, a little pile of insulation. And so you'll have things like condensation on surfaces inside tiny houses that you wouldn't have on bigger houses, because frankly, we're just building a lot more into like packing more into the nooks and crannies of the houses. And that means that then we're going to be insulating and changing the temperature of surfaces. And then we end up with these kind of weird mildewy situations, which again, then get back to the air quality inside of my house. For example, I've got about 2000 cubic air. If there's mildew in here, I will smell it immediately, no matter where I am, because it's just very, not very much air. So it's just um, that kind of a, of a way of thinking will really get you there. And then moisture wise, right? You need a, a way to get moisture out of the house if there's too much, a way to bring moisture into the house if there's not enough, um, your ventilation system, whether that's an HRV, whether it's just a bath fan running all the time, um, bath fan wise, to talk about airflow and pressure, and this will be my last thing. We, I, could, I could talk like literally, I, as your listeners can probably tell for hours on this, but bath fans, my blower door test. And if you don't know what a blower door test is, please watch the TV show, go to our YouTube channel. It's called Home Performance. Um, the blower door test on, on, on the tiny lab is about 50 CFM. That means that if I was to plug in, if I had installed by accident, a bath fan in my bathroom, because of course I use it to go to the bathroom in there and I use it to take showers. I would be doing every time I turned that bath fan on a blower door test on the house. And that is one of the worst things I could possibly do to this house. So I made sure not to affect the pressures in this house because I knew exactly how um, tight and how rigid the house was going to be. And so I made sure to have a balanced ventilation, not just one-sided ventilation. So that's kind of like, those are some of the things that you can tell once you start going on the rabbit hole, it's, there's like a lot to think about, but that's why we tried to really make it into that four, three, two, one, very simple, um, seeming approach so that you can keep your head on straight. So how do you, how do you figure this stuff out while you're designing the tiny house? Cause it, so far it seems like, okay, I can do a blower door test and I can figure out, you know, how airtight the house is after it's built. How do I kind of make sure that it's that I can predict these things so that I can design a house that's high performance from the very start. Exactly. So the predict word that you used is exactly what this is about. So just like, um, for example, people build a house anywhere in the world today, they have a designer on it. They know what their target square footage is. They say, I want it to be around 2,500 square feet or whatever it is for a normal family, right? For us crazy people, we're talking about like 200 or 300 or 400 square feet. Um, and so you have a target quantity that you're shooting for. 
And then you can work around that. That's your, your constraint, right? That you're, you're limiting yourself to. Same thing goes for any performance metric. And that's why our goal is to transform housing into sports. You can, there's like literally a million metrics that you could get about houses. I could tell you how much carbon, uh, how much carbon dioxide there is in the house that I'm speaking to you from, how much carbon monoxide, what the airflow rate uh, of exchange is, what my pressure balancing between inside and outside and between the rooms inside my house is, all that stuff. So basically, whatever it is that would have to do with those four elements, you want to have a target that you're shooting for with each of them. So when I was building this house, I decided um, as a first-time home builder, because I had never you know, used a nail gun even before I started building this thing, uh, to shoot for passive house airtightness, which is the most stringent building certification in the world. And so... And I did that just because I wanted to be ballsy and like, you know, say, oh, I could, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, I'm sure, but I could do it. And we did. Um, and the, the key is to track yourself. So to test yourself, not just at the very end, but to kind of like do a little assessment halfway through and say, okay, how are we doing? Make sure to do inspections, make sure that you understand, you know, how all this stuff is supposed to work. That takes definitely having people who have done this stuff before to ping ideas off of and ask, am I being an idiot? Like, am I forgetting something? So I do that still, I'm building a 3000 square foot house, 50 feet away from this tiny house that I'm talking to you from. And for sure, that's what my process is over there all the time. I'm just constantly asking people who know a lot more than I do what I'm missing. Okay. So, and actually just going back a second, um, when you were talking about that bathroom fan and how it's going to create negative pressure and essentially be like a blower door test, I'm assuming you do have a bathroom fan in your house and or a kitchen vent hood fan. So how do you how do you mitigate for those? Okay, so yes, mitigate is the right word to use because of course we're doing weird stuff. And when we talk about chemistry, that's a whole other topic. And I hope we'll have time to get to that. But weird stuff is gonna happen inside of a house. For example, you do have to, every house on the planet must have source exhaust in bathrooms and kitchens is because you're creating stuff that you don't want to hang around the house like humidity. So in the bathroom, I for sure do have an exhaust um, device, but it is hooked up to a supply device in the case of my bathroom. So we have what's called an ERV, an energy recovery ventilator, which I call an equalizing ventilator, which is taking stale air out of the house at one point, which is over the shower in our bathroom. And it does that 24 hours a day. At the same time, that machine that's running that is also running another fan at the exact same rate, and it's pushing fresh air into the house, and it's pushing it way into the back where we've got the dining loft and the sleeping under loft. So I basically have set up a pressure imbalance in the house that I've specifically designed in so that air is constantly leaving the bathroom and being supplied to the bedrooms, which creates this kind of tidal movement of air up through the house all the time. So for example, you know, I have a um, litter box in here, as I mentioned, and the way that I keep the air from never going from the litter box to somebody's nose is I know what direction the air is moving when it leaves that litter box. It's always going out and away from the litter box because we're, we're just using the elegant, very simple uh, element of pressure to induce the air to move from the litter box to outdoors and never from the litter box to somebody's face. So the same thing goes for the kitchen exhaust. You want a kitchen exhaust that goes outside 100%. In fact, anybody who's listening to this that does not have that, that is the single most important thing for anybody to have in their home to protect their family. So of course, we use it every single time we cook. 
and every time we make toast or anything else or tea. So, um, so we, we turn that on and in our house here, we have what's called a passive makeup air unit. It's just a hole that opens up in the wall that's uh, powered by a motorized damper. When it senses that I've turned on the exhaust hood, then it opens up that hole in the wall and air is able to rush in and go up around the cooktop and then go back to outside. So I've got this little kind of small loop instead of pulling air in from all of the accidental gaps and cracks and up through the drains and you know back through. Yeah, obviously the first thing that happens on any tiny house that has a composting toilet, if you depressurize it, the first thing you'll do is smell the compost which is probably not all compost, right? So it doesn't smell very good. And that happens in here too. If you don't, you know, if you, if you don't run the ventilation system exactly right, you'll have weird stuff start to happen. Got it. So in a house that's super tight, you really have to be more careful about, like when you do run a ventilation fan, you're going to pull air from places that you weren't expecting unless you've you've got that makeup source already kind of predetermined. Exactly right. So how would that work? Um, I'm th- I'm thinking of myself or I'm thinking of someone in a really cold climate that I might not love having that makeup air for my kitchen hood because that would be, you know, sometimes negative 10 degree air in the winter. What would you recommend for someone like me who wants to have a kitchen hood in my tiny house but doesn't necessarily want to get makeup air that's freezing cold? Sure. Well, um, in, in a tiny space... You're kind of SOL because we just don't have enough room. There is a device that I'm installing in my big house, which comes in 13 boxes. um, And it's a powered makeup air unit that has a filter and a silencer and a preheater built into it. That would be like if you really wanted to do it perfectly right and, and be able to heat that air as it comes in, that's how you would do it. No one's going to do that in a tiny space because it never once you know, that would be like a pretty big chunk of your ventilation budget would be just for that one piece of equipment. Um, and also you just don't have the space, but I'd say what I do in this house and for sure it gets cold in Atlanta. Um, you know, it's colder longer than it is hot is that I have, um, your feet, your feet are going to get a little cold if you're standing by the stove and cooking. So we try to keep the, the cooking as efficient as possible. We have three burners, not just two, because then we can cook three things at a time instead of just two, and it takes you know a little less time. And also, I have a thermo um, a thermometer taped to the plumbing that is also running through that little cavity behind my refrigerator where that fresh air is coming in. Because the worst thing, like there's one thing which is, oh, I have my feet are cold. But on the plus side, I know for a fact that I'm protecting my kids from the chemistry of the nitrates that they might be breathing, the weird particles that I'm creating. All that stuff is bad to breathe. So I'm, I'm protecting my family. It's healthy. Yeah. My feet are cold, but worst thing would be if my water line froze. So in order to make sure that I have that taken care of, I have a thermometer that's installed permanently in my house where I've got a little readout right next to the stovetop that shows me what the temperature on the outside of that water line is. And if that gets down to, you know, mid thirties, then I would stop cooking at that point and, you know, give it a rest to uh, warm back up. That has never happened, really, because it's, it's rare that you would run the uh, kitchen exhaust on high. But that's kind of those are the kind of things you would want to think about to mitigate the issues that you're going to be creating inside homes just by living in them. What are some resources that you recommend for people who are either currently designing or maybe even currently building their tiny houses um, that people can use to 
start to think about these things and start to incorporate this into their plans? Uh, I'd say that the main thing is like get, which is probably not much of a problem for most tiny house obsessed people, get as many points of view as you possibly can. Something like, you know, for example, your tiny house bundle that you do every year um, is a great thing because then you get like a bunch of different resources and you can go and you know, I have no idea whether people actually go through all of the resources that they get as a part of that. But um, for sure, YouTube, I would say for sure what you'll see on YouTube a lot is very surface level stuff. If you want to see some about the physics and chemistry side of things, then watch our tiny lab playlist and all that is free on our uh, YouTube channel. And again, that's called home performance. But the time, if you search hashtag tiny lab on YouTube, you'd come up with our, our playlist. Um, and you know, we tried to, everything we do is specifically to talk about the invisible dynamics that we're trying to control. So you'd, you'd get that kind of ingredient in every one of our videos. Um, we have a course uh, called Tiny uh, Home Performance for Tiny Spaces. I'd say um, look at any plans. Like if you get a set of plans, and you can get these for free in some cases for very low amounts of money. Like you know, even something that's you know a thousand dollars, in my opinion, for a set of plans that's really well thought out, is kind of a deal. And I know most people, you know, tiny house people are like, that shouldn't cost me more than a hundred dollars, no matter what it is. Uh, that's a different discussion. <laughs> but I would say that um, look at a set of plans with your new hat of the four, three, two, one of like trying to look at, okay, where is heat going to flow within this, this house? Where is airflow and pressure maybe going to build up? Where are the pressure barriers? Where is there a fan? Where is something that's going to move be moving heat? Um, and then moisture-wise, where is my moisture coming from? Where's my moisture going? What happens when I kick on the you know, bath exhaust fan? Where, you know, is, is that potentially going to backwash back into the house through another opening? And then air quality. And the air quality piece is where you can really go off the deep end. You could talk, I mean, I, you know, days and days about all that stuff, which is why we have so many videos on the, the channel. But I think that looking at those things, just trying to look around the world, look at your own house through that 4321 lens and you'll start to really learn, teach yourself. And that's what I did, essentially. I you know, self-studied for a lot of this stuff. Um, I've made tons and tons of mistakes and, um, and seen lots of different types of houses through my work in consulting for people. And I think that, that there, there is no replacement for experience. There are ways to get your leg up and really start thinking about things in a new way, which even a lot of people who are experienced won't ever go through which is one of the other things is that if you're dealing with somebody who's building tiny houses and they're not thinking about this stuff, um, they definitely should be because they are the ones that are potentially going to make a mistake or leave something out or do one of the other crazy things that is like okay to do on big houses because it doesn't make that much of a difference, which I get calls about from people all over the world that they're like, hey, I've got this space that I was really excited about, but now I have mold or mildew. What went wrong? Um, and of course it's like, it, it always is some scientific thing that it was totally predictable. And that prediction is what you really want to focus on because you just don't want to have to fix something later. Right, man. I have so many, I have so many questions and so many directions we could go from here. Um, but I want to get this one off the list cause I know that people are going to ask if I don't ask you, which is, um, how is your tiny house insulated? Like what insulation did you use? What sheathing did you use? Maybe just give me some of the kind of raw material info. Sure. So what I'll do for you is actually uh, explain the enclosure of the house, which is both the air sealing and insulation layer. Um, 
I am not uh, a fan personally and to my clients of spray foam products right now or foam, rigid foam, because they all contain flame retardants. These are things that the Consumer Product Safety Commission took out of kids' jammies in the early 80s because they were found to be um, not just unhealthy, but also cancer-causing and things like that. So I have kids in here, so I just didn't want to have anything to do with flame retardants. And so foam was totally out of the question for me, except under the floor, which there really wasn't a, a, a better option for that. And I've got several layers of air tightness between me and the floor, my face and the floor and my kids' faces. So the floor is insulated with, um, I built down into the trailer because we wanted to maximize headroom and we have drop axles. The trailer is insulated between the metal beams with EPS that's like normal styrofoam. Um, then the walls are two by four framed at 24 inches on center with a hurricane tie on every single piece of wood. So we've got basically, you know, uh, metal clips attaching every single piece of wood in this house down to the trailer. Um, those two by four walls are insulated with R15 rock wool insulation. Then the ceiling is also two by four, 24 inches on center. That's also R15 rock wool insulation with an extra uh, inch, I think, on the outside continuous on the top. So that would make that the walls R15 in the cavity, that the roof would be an R15 plus an R5. Um, so that's not very much insulation. For people who know what insulation value should be in homes, the insulation in here is not as much as in many people's homes. And right, yet, and it's less than than a tiny house that would that is spray foamed because you know yeah, exactly. two by four frame tiny house with three inches of spray foam is going to exactly. be more like R twenty one. Right, and so I one of the the tools of my trade is uh, energy modeling. So you can put there's a way to put in all the factors about a home into a computer, and then run that home through a year of weather where it's going to be located. And of course that's difficult for a tiny house on wheels. We went ahead and did that for like a couple different locations, but mainly Atlanta, cause that's where we knew we were going to settle. Um, and so then you can modify things like the roof insulation. If we were to, and I'll give you a, an explicit example, if we were to up the wall R values to closed cell spray foam insulation, which I wouldn't do number one, because it would crack and I wouldn't have the air sealing properties that you're supposed to get when you pay four times as much for an insulation product like that. Um, but, but above and beyond that, it would take my wall R values to R24 roughly. And my, my roof R value also, you know, I could expand the roof dimensions and make it R38, for example, let's just say. If I was to do that, I would save about $10 a year on conditioning costs. And I would still have to buy the smallest heat pump in the world, which is the Mitsubishi half-ton uh, ductless mini split, which I have in my house now. And it's now too big for my house. It's, it's actually got way more power than I'll ever need. If I was to insulate even better, I would be intentionally detuning my engines from my enclosure. And you don't want to do that. What you want to do is have everything be tuned and, and in harmony with everything else in the house as far as the physics and, and chemistry goes. So if I was to add more insulation, it ultimately wouldn't save me any money. It would cost me more money. It would lose my headroom. And it would uh, have a detrimental effect on the way that my conditioning device, my heat pump, heats and cools my house because it would just be way too big at that point. So for all those reasons, there's a sweet spot in generally every single house where it's like, this is exactly the right amount of insulation. Not too little, not too much. 
Did you model, did you happen to model how your house would perform in somewhere like the Northeast or, you know, like the Northern Midwest where, you know, temps do get below zero? Yes, I did. And that, um, the heat pump that we've got runs down to negative five degrees with no loss in efficiency. And then it keeps going down to negative, you know, it can keep going down to negative 40. Um, it would just be less and less efficient at that point because of course you're trying to pull heat out of air that is really, really cold. So there's only a little bit of it. Um, so yeah, in, in all climates and we actually toured this thing around the country, we didn't go anywhere where there was winter, thank God, because we were just not in the mood to chase that. But we went for sure to Death Valley, for example, and it was 110 degrees out there and about 10% relative humidity. And the house performed beautifully. We have a video on that on the, you know, on the channel as well. But yeah, I think that that, you know, if you're trying to do a real life realistic model, you would put it in one location for a tiny house on wheels for some of my clients who are like, I want to go from Alaska to Florida. It's like, okay, you can do that, but we're going to, you're going to have to spend a little bit more money. So it's like somebody who says, oh, I want to be able to live comfortably in Alaska in the wintertime and summer in the uh, Florida in the summertime. And I want to spend $40,000 on this tiny house. And it's going to be 36 feet long. Absolutely not. Like, and I want to be able to tow it with a with a Honda Civic. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think a lot of people are probably a lot smarter about like towing packages than they are about um, some of this stuff. But I think that the the fallacy of thinking that you can spend a little bit of money and have a house that's beautiful that's your forever home that is as tight and small as we're you know expecting it to be is really crazy. But like my house, for example, with the number I put on it, if somebody asks me how much would your house cost, I tell them it would be one hundred twenty five thousand dollars which is about $600 a square foot. But it's got everything that a normal house has in it. And it has to be even more well-engineered than a normal house. And I'm going to be literally touching or, or, or within three feet of everything in the house all the time. So it better be nice. So I think that that's, those are the kinds of thinking that is a little bit different than the mainstream tiny house you know, way of thinking. I just, um, you get what you pay for. And I think that I have less patience lately for um, people who expect that they can spend twenty or $30,000 on a house and have it be a perfect, perfect machine. I wonder if you've thought about the building code. Now I know, and, and I'm not like, I'm not saying this to like accuse you, but my guess is that in Alaska, the building code would require more insulation and, and probably more in Atlanta for, for a residential home are you kind of taking advantage of the fact that tiny houses are in that legal gray area? And so you can kind of engineer this space however you want, or maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a valid question. I'd say that number one, you should understand that one of the ways to comply with building code is using that energy model software that I mentioned called a performance path compliance. And I do that for people all the time. So that that is one way that you can meet uh, essentially the code is not about making you comfortable. The code is there for energy conservation. So what they want to make sure you're doing is not um, hogging up a bunch of energy that we need to be saving to become more energy independent as a country. So that's like a little secret that some people might not realize. Um, it's called the International Energy Conservation Code. So that's where all of those like minimum levels for insulation stuff come from. I can prove, for example, because of what I mentioned, I can plug my entire house into one plug in any other house that this house is, is energy efficient. And I can do that with my performance modeling. So that's kind of where that would fit in. I'd say the goal though, um, for, for me all the time is 
customizing. It's like personalized performance because some people don't mind wearing a parka in their house. And so if we're going to try and make it perform exactly the way they want, they like to have the window open. I know a lot of people like that who say, I have to have a window open when I go to sleep or else I can't go to sleep. And like, that's pretty, you know, eh, that's going to be a difficult thing to tune for with performance, but you can do it. Certainly. Um, the, the number one way you do it is just loosen up the performance of the house so that it can flex a lot easier and be kind of a floppier piece of machinery. That's not going to be as, you know, it's not going to be a Tesla for sure. Um, but yes, code is something that you should focus on and code is there for like safety and also for energy conservation, but the comfort side and the performance side, most of what I'm talking about, um, and health above and beyond just safety of the house falling down on you or poisoning you with, um, natural gas or something like that is not considered in code. And so that's where I'd say having that conversation and, and knowing that tiny houses are outside of code and this house is never going to comply with that new, the addendum, uh, to the tiny house code because of a bunch of different reasons, but like I wasn't, you know, these things are trailers. Like, let's be perfectly honest. They're built for the road. And so the department of transportation should be the ones that inspect it because it's mostly a danger to people when it's on the road. Um, so I think that it really, it's not realistic. And I try to make that perfectly clear to people when they look at my house, it's like, well, this is like a real house, but it's way more, um, way more rigid, uh, slightly more dangerous, um, way more interesting for sure from a physics and chemistry standpoint than a normal house. And you can't build this. Like now I'm building a real house and I, the, and the nightmare of there is dirt and foundation stuff, which is like, I just got through that. We're starting to frame up the walls and there's all kinds of stuff that you can do in a tiny house that you just can't do on a big house and vice versa. And so I think that trying to like make tiny houses fit into the housing code is a little bit weird because it just doesn't, they're totally different animals. Let's talk about mitigating a house that has already been built. Like say somebody is already living tiny. They hear this interview and they're like, well, that's great. I wish I had known about this two years ago. You know, where, what What can they do? Sure. So um, what they should do is, first of all, come up with a list of what they are experiencing that's problematic. If they don't have any problems, if they're listening to my voice and they're like, oh, well, that's all theoretically really nice, but I'm not having a problem. That's totally possible. That's why I'm a testing expert and not a building science expert. Because frankly, building science is based on theory. And the theory, you can theorize all you want, but really until you get out there and start measuring what's actually happening, it's all just ideas. So I'd say if you are having problems with your house, the you know, most obvious ones would be the way your house smells, the amount of moisture in your house, any kind of condensation or mildew or mold or um, air quality issues. Or for example, a lot of people put in these gas stoves in their house, which are like 9,000, 13,000 BTUs per hour. And it's way too much heat. So when you go to sleep, you either have to leave it on and leave a window open or um, turn it off and close up all the windows. And then by the time you get up in the morning, now it's really cold inside and you have to warm it back up, which is for sure the way people used to live in you know the 1700s. If you had a log cabin on the middle of nowhere, you didn't let the fire burn all night. You you woke up to a cold house and then you had to warm it up. So um, so I'd say make, making that list of things that you're experiencing and then thinking through the 4321 of how, you know what elements could be involved in those symptoms that you're experiencing. For example, air quality or mildew issues would be moisture, probably airflow and pressure, probably heat flow, uh, and lastly, air 
air quality, right? So that's all four elements are involved in anything that has to do with air quality because you've got kind of, you know, the temperature of the surfaces, the temperature of the air, the humidity level inside, the humidity level outside, if you're using passive ventilation or if you, you know, have an HRV instead of an ERV, all that stuff is really comes into play. And, and that's anybody who lives in a house is really their own best doctor for at, at first blush. So go through that, come up with what you think it could be then take stock of feasibly what you could do. For example, if you have a bath fan and you have all spray foam in your house, in your tiny house, those things are going to fight with each other. And every time you turn the bath fan on, you might be smelling your toilet, which of course would happen if you were to predict this with going through this analysis in the planning stage. But of course, if you're already built, then you can start to try to mitigate this stuff by using some less than perfect, but still workable solutions. Like you could retrofit one of these makeup air dampers into your house. You need a little cavity to be able to do that with. Um, harder to, to build in like a balanced ventilation system because you need access to all the cavities and all that stuff. Um, but I'd say, you know, the best option for most people is like just open windows. And remember that if you're a grown up, you're already dying from air contaminants. Like we're all, you know, ate too much pizza and too many corporate snacks when we were growing up. So we're all full of all kinds of contaminants. If you're talking about kids, that's a whole different conversation about like trying to control the chemistry indoors. So, and that's where I'm at is like thinking of my kids. If I was by myself, a bachelor in a tiny house and it stinks a little bit in here, eh, well, you know, like I, I went to college, I lived in a dorm room. I've dealt with it before. I'll deal with it again. That's great. The, those are some really great suggestions. Um, and I, I feel like I, I want to have you back on because you said some things that made me blush a little bit about my tiny house, especially the 14,000 BTU gas stove that makes it too hot in the loft while I'm sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that's classic. I'm curious what the experience of living tiny with kids has been like and what advice you might give to potential tiny house hopefuls who do want to live tiny with young kids. Um, I'll give you a philosophical answer that your listeners might not like, frankly. Um, I would say really analyze why you think you'd want to live tiny. Grace and I did this for a very specific reason to teach people about building science and home performance by showing them what a house that is very finely tuned feels and smells and sounds like. And and talking about it is one thing, but showing people, inviting them into our home and having them breathe the air and be like, okay, now that you've breathed it in here, there is a litter box, there are poopy diapers, and there is a composting toilet. And then they say, well, how am I not smelling that? And it's like, okay, now we're having the conversation. So I say for, for Grace and I, we did it for a very specific uh, reason to change the world and try and get people to understand something that is very hard to, to talk to them about. Um, I heard around the country when we were on tour that a lot of people wanted to just get away from spending money and say that is not a good reason to want to live tiny because no matter where you are, you have to have uh, access to electricity. If you really think you're going to be off grid um, living tiny, I, I would again encourage you to like, we're going to at, hopefully at some point Airbnb this place just so that people can experience what it's like, but it's like farming. You know, and if anybody's like, I hope you're nodding your head, it's living in a tiny house is hard. It's not like uh, for wimps. You have to, with this house is built to be off grid electrically and water wise because we didn't know where we were going to be around the country. You have to refill your water bag. You have to take quicker showers. You have to uh, conserve your electricity. 
you've got to um, make sure that you're handling your, you know, messing with the ventilation and checking on your under the house and you've got ants that are now eating into the frame of the floor and all that, which has happened to me. Um, so, so I'd say really being realistic about there are going to be costs associated with whatever you're doing. The reason tiny houses are on wheels, well, I hope all of us know, is so that you can run away when they find you and they say you're not allowed to live in that as your main house. It's not because being on wheels is better. Um, it's, it's worse, right? Because you got those wheel wells to deal with insulation-wise, that whole, that whole thing becomes an issue. But um, so you won't get away from money, from spending money. You won't get away from... Uh, people really, you won't get away from contaminants. That was another thing that we heard people say, I have an environmental sensitivity and I think I should have a really healthy tiny house. And again, just to circle back from the beginning of the conversation, a tiny house is just like a big house, except everything in it that might poison you is a lot closer to your face. So anybody who has an environmental sensitivity actually should be running the opposite direction from a tiny space, unless you're really going to go down the deep end and spend a lot of money and time like we did trying to tune all this stuff perfectly. And even then, you know, it's, it's hard to hit 100% on every single situation because of course life happens and you can't predict everything. Um, but if you're going into it because you want to have the certain lifestyle, I totally respect that. If you, if you want to have more control over your pocketbook, I totally understand that. Um, those are some benefits. And I'd say... Just make sure that you're doing it smartly and really thinking about these performance elements because you might be building something um, that is number one. If you're thinking that you're going to resell this in a couple of years, again, think again. Talk to any builder. I have a friend who built a tiny house and he's trying to sell it for sixteen thousand dollars, and no one will will buy it. And I think that it's an idea that a lot of us are like, have a you know, it's a, this unicorn, right? It's a great idea. Are you really going to do it? Mm, probably not, which is probably best for most people. So if you are going to do it, just make sure you do it right. Make sure you tune the indoor chemistry and, and um, physics by following as many of the YouTube videos, which are free. And then you getting things like, you know, Ethan's uh, tiny house bundle, you know, when that comes out in the spring, doing my tiny spaces course, really thinking about it. And if anybody wants consulting, I do that for people as well. And, and in some cases, the, the answer, like, I'll give you an example. I have this great client who's in the Netherlands, who's a vanner. And he, he came to me and was like, oh yeah, I want to build a super high performance space inside the back of my van. And I want it to, and I want to be able to sleep in it anywhere, anytime. And I was like, okay, first of all, are you married? No. Or do you have a girlfriend? No. Okay, good. Now we've, we're past the first hurdle. We can start to do that. Do you need windows? No. All right, now we're talking. Because if you want to be able to do all this stuff and have windows inside of your, your van, that's totally crazy. So we were able to really build this like perfectly insulated airtight foam box that is ventilated and dehumidified for them. And that's like super fun. That's a really weird project. So if you're a weirdo, great. I, you, you know, welcome to the club. Um, and, and for sure, try and think outside the box as much as possible. Because if you follow the best practices in, in normal houses, it, it might bite you in a tiny space. Well, those are some, those are some wise words. I, I think this has been really helpful. And there's just one last question that I like to ask everybody. Do you have any books or resources that, that helped you out along your tiny journey that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. So I'd say a couple of things. Number one, we went, when we were first thinking about this, we went to Portland and we stayed for, um, I think two, maybe it was just two nights at the tiny house hotel. 
which is called caravan out there. And we stayed in two different models, one in each night um, to try and see like, what do we like about this? What do we hate about it? We figured out real fast that we did not like the loft up top, especially with a peaked roof. Um, and we did like the under loft. Um, we liked the shed roof better than the peaked roof. You know, there's, there's like a bunch of things that we figured out in those couple of days. We, we wanted a bigger sink than what a lot of people install. So really going and living in one, even for one day, will really give you a, an excellent feel for what you're in for. Um, also, we took a tiny home building course because I had never built anything before. So we are, ours was um, in near Atlanta and it was with a company called Tiny Home Builders. Um, and it was like a three-day thing and we get to talk to people and I was building up my framing plan for the house in the 3D modeling program that I use, which is called SketchUp. Um, and while we were like at the, the thing, we were learning how to frame and how the... the trailer needs to be and how to tow and what the composting toilet is like and all that stuff. So I'd say really like going and being hands-on is the best way to do it. Um, I did read some books, but honestly, they, I, they didn't have not stuck in my memory. Well, Corbett Lunsford, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. This was really great. Awesome. It was great to talk with you, Ethan. Thanks for having me. You can find the show notes, including links to all of the resources that Corbett mentioned at thetinyhouse.net slash 050. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 050. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is sponsored this week by the Tiny House Design Build Certificate at Yestermorrow in Waitsfield, Vermont. The Tiny House Design Build Certificate is for everyone from professionals entering the tiny house market to DIYers who want to design and build their own home. This is the most comprehensive tiny house course available. The curriculum covers all the must-knows for the tiny house design build and offers students hands-on experience designing, drafting, and building a tiny house on wheels for a real client. To learn more, visit yestermorrow.org tiny and use the coupon code PODCAST to waive the $25 application fee. Again, that's yestermorrow, Y-E-S-T-E-R-M-O-R-R-O-W dot org slash tiny, and use the coupon code PODCAST to save $25. Thank you so much to Yestermorrow for sponsoring our show. That's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite app so you get the new episode every Friday when it comes out.